welcome back to the Global Enquirer Spring 2018 season. Ultimately, I say our history was hijacked and held hostage by the state. Protecting that domestic culture is always the justification, regardless of the actual ends. This has always fascinated the political scientists and social scientists. If you have economic growth, uh, is that enough? I would venture to say it's not enough. At Sehat Kahani, we hope that we will actually be able to save and be the saviors of healthcare for at least these kinds of women. So if China is indeed intending to participate in the consumer-driven economy, it'll be interesting to evaluate the risks posed to other markets. But there is also a kind of opportunity for these countries to create their own new economic relationships and political relationships within the region. It has essentially pursued what observers have called the multi-vector foreign policy. And this is reflective of a much broader trend within Mexico where Mexican security forces commit abuses with total impunity. Welcome to Global Inquirer Spring 2018 live episode. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast at the University of Virginia that takes a look at case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. Today on the show, we're going to discuss when to draw the red line, justifying humanitarian intervention. Uh, we have a few great researchers on and a great, ho- uh, great guest on for today. On my right is Anna von Spikowski. She's a researcher at the Global Inquirer, a second year and a global security and justice major. Anna, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And on her right is Dominic Giovaniello. Dominic is an Arabic and global security and justice major, a fourth year and a researcher at the Global Inquirer. Dom, thanks as well. Pleasure to be here. And finally, we have our guest, Mark Leon Goldberg. Mark is the editor of the United Nations UN Dispatch blog, the co-founder of Don's Digest, and after more than 12 years of writing on both foreign affairs and humanitarian news. And finally, he's the host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Which, fe- which features fantastic interviews with foreign policy academics, journalists, and civil society leaders. Mark, thanks for coming on. Hello, how are you guys? Doing thanks well. Thanks for having me. For sure. So, our episode today will take a look at a case study of the Syrian civil war to bring up a larger discussion of justifying humanitarian intervention in light of the humanitarian crises that have occurred in the past and the crises that are still going on today, like in Syria. But before jumping into the Syrian case study, we're going to take a step back and talk about humanitarian crises in general. So first off, Anna, I want to jump to you. How does the UN define a humanitarian crisis? So a humanitarian crisis is an event or a series of events that poses serious risk to the health, safety, or well-being of a group of people. So 
This could be a natural disaster, this could be a man-made disaster, or it could be a complex emergency, um, like what we're talking about today in Syria, where it's a civil war that has caused huge numbers of internally displaced persons, refugees, sexual violence, etc. Right, and so to answer and to respond to a lot of these humanitarian crises, the UN has used the framework of what we're going to call responsibility to protect. And then I want to jump back to you again. What is the UN's responsibility to protect? So the responsibility to protect is the idea that a state has an obligation to protect its people from humanitarian crises. And if a state is either unable or unwilling to do this, or is itself a perpetrator of crimes, then the international community has an obligation to step in. And this was really developed um, after the Rwandan genocide in 1994, the Bosnian genocide in 1995, and the UN's failure to stop these events. It's really an attempt to reconcile um, infringing on the sovereignty of nations and promoting human dignity, which the UN um, tries to do. Right, but before moving forward, I want to walk through some of the differences between how responsibility can be perceived, because we've taught, um, a lot of scholars have noted that there are differences between a moral responsibility and a legal responsibility to perceive. And this is where I want to bring you and Mark. What would you say are the differences between a moral responsibility to protect and a legal responsibility to protect? Well, from a legal framework, the only entity that can invoke the doctrine of the responsibility to protect, which was enshrined in UN doctrine at a world summit in 2005. I was there. It was, it was a pretty exciting and, and, and heady time to see these heads of state debating this idea. But in the end, the heads of state who, who wrote the doctrine and enshrined it into a UN principle uh, reserved the invocation of responsibility to protect to the Security Council. So only a vote of the Security Council, legally speaking, uh, can, can um, enable the responsibility to protect to, to come into force. So that's like the legal side of thing. I mean, the moral side of thing is, you know, it, it, it sort of changes our frame of thinking about who has the obligation to protect their citizens. You know, in the late 1990s and the mid 1990s, when the Rwanda and Bosnia genocides happened, there, the excuse on the part of the international community was, you know, our Westphalian system that was, you know, created uh, and has been there, you know, for, for, for decades, for centuries, um, rests on the principle of state sovereignty, that each state is responsible for what happens within its borders. And this responsibility to protect was the first sort of idea that could pierce that armor of, of state sovereignty and allow other ideas and, and allow other um, norms to, to, to follow. And so how does the UN reconcile with this you know, the prohib prohibition of the use of force unless authorized by the Security Council at the same time that they promised to protect human dignity. How, how do you reconcile these two statements? Well, I mean, human dignity is upheld every day by the United Nations through its humanitarian uh, relief efforts, through distributing food aid, through its development efforts, through you know helping economies transition from poor to medium income to hopefully, you know, high income countries. Uh, I mean, that, that's sort of the day-to-day -day work of, of the UN in any case. And there's like the, the suite of treaty bodies that create norms around human dignity that prohibit things like the use of chemical weapons or um, the, the violation of, of human rights. So that's, that's sort of the, the norm building, the human dignity promotion. But again, the actual 
intervention can only occur, legally speaking, with a Security Council resolution. And it's also worth noting that the responsibility to protect does not um, specifically or does not does not uh, require at first instance armed military intervention. It calls for a series of steps uh, below armed intervention, economic sanctions, and, and other things to try to prevent a, a conflict from spiraling out of control to the point where it might require foreign military intervention. Mm -hmm. And beyond responsibility to protect, though, and I want to jump back to you, what else has sort of hamstrung the UN in intervening in case that clearly could have saved thousands of lives if they had intervened like in 1994 in Rwanda. So one of the things that is important to look at right now is the presence of China and Russia on the Security Council. China and Russia have resisted and in the case of Syria directly opposed UN intervention and one of the reasons is because of you know human rights abuses in their own countries and they're concerned about setting a precedent of intervention based on human rights abuses in the case that in the future, you know, it could be used against them. Mm -hmm. And so when in history then has the UN actually intervened to sort of prevent or at least mitigate a humanitarian crisis? Yeah, so one of the cases that has been held up as a success is Kosovo in 1999. Kosovo is a province within the former Yugoslavia, and at that point they were in a civil war between Kosovar Albanians and Serbians. And NATO actually bypassed the UN Security Council, and they went in and bombed the Serbian forces and were able to push them back. And eventually, the UN did come in and set up civil administration. So on one hand, it was illegal from the stance that they didn't get the Security Council approval, but it was also successful in stopping um, ethnic cleansing of Albanians that had been going on and a potential genocide. Mm -hmm. And Mark, I want to jump back to you here because a lot of scholars have criticized UN intervention in Libya and seen it as largely ineffective. Can you talk about what actually happened that led up to Libya and Libya and in the intervention and allowed you know, scholars to deem it largely as a, a failure on the part of the international community? Mm -hmm. So. The one and only time that the responsibility to protect was directly invoked in the Security Council resolution authorizing the use of force was in 2011 when the Security Council uh, invoked R2P for uh, the Libya intervention. And the, the resolution was interesting. It said that the uh, international community, that, that forces could impose a no-fly zone. And crucially, it also said that forces could use, quote, any means necessary to uh, secure, you know, to, to protect human rights and, and, and secure uh, that no-fly zone. Uh, that was a controversial decision. The uh, Russians and the Chinese abstained rather than vetoed it, allowing the resolution to pass. But I think that they quickly regret, regretted that decision. You know, I was at a conference at the UN um, probably just a few months after Gaddafi died and, and um, after he was, he was killed. And there was the, the Russian ambassador was there and the Dutch ambassador was there. And the, the Dutch ambassador at the time served on the Security Council, part of the rotating member of the Security Council. And the uh, Russian ambassador was railing against that Security Council resolution, saying that when he abstained from this resolution, he was not authorizing the uh, NATO forces to become the de facto air force of the Syrian of the Libyan rebels, and then the Dutch ambassador retorted, "Well, you know, you should have read that line where we said any means necessary." Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that was a very contentious um, 
intervention. And frankly, it, it divided NATO as well. All of NATO was not uh, allied with this decision. Um, and many members of, of NATO set out this intervention. But basically, R2P was invoked because at the time, Gaddafi was threatening and his forces were threatened to raise an entire city of, of Benghazi and you know, kill tens of thousands of people trapped inside. And he was using all sorts of language that set off alarm bells of people who study mass atrocities, calling the residents there like rats and subhumans. So it was expected that if intervention did not occur and occur fast, there would be this bloodbath on, on, uh, the, the, on their hands. But Anna, I want to take it back to you. How did this humanitarian intervention end up devolving into maybe a worse political situation in Libya? Yeah, it's, it's honestly pretty sad because at first it did seem like a success. Um, the intervention did allow uh, rebel groups to take the capital. Um, Gaddafi was killed, but it eventually did uh, devolve into chaos again. By 2014, they were at the brink of another civil war um, between liberals and Islamists in the government. Uh, the U.S. didn't have an adequate post-intervention plan, and they failed to disarm rebels. They also failed to contain violence that spilled over into neighboring countries. Now Libya actually has become a safe haven for some terrorist groups, some that are affiliated with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. and you know, violence now is worse than it was under Gaddafi. So, you know, this really shows that even when you use the framework of the responsibility to protect, even when you have good intentions, there can still be dire consequences for the people that you're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting too is we see a lot of parallels in the discussion to intervene in Libya with the discussion to intervene in Syria. And this will bring us into the case study of Syria that we had talked about in the outset of the podcast. But before discussing this case study of Syria, I think it's important to grasp the scope of the humanitarian crisis. You know, we're talking about estimates of 500,000 people killed in conflict, half of its 22 million population displaced, and over 5.4 million refugees scattered across the world. So keeping this in mind, Dominic, I want to bring you now in the conversation. Can you just talk about the background of the Syrian civil war before jumping right into the case study? Yeah, just to give a brief background of the conflict in Syria, uh, the Syrian civil war didn't emerge out of a vacuum. There are three main factors that led up to the conflict, uh, the first of which was decades of political repression within the country at the hands of the Assad regime. The second was a massive multi-year drought that caused a rural exodus and placed a lot of strain on the Syrian government and on Syrian society. And the final was the Arab Spring. The spark that really lit the revolution in Syria was the arrest, detention, and brutal torture of 15 young boys in the southern city of Dara after they were arrested for writing anti-regime graffiti on the walls of their school. Uh, this sparked a massive protest in Dara, which quickly spread throughout the country. However, rather than tolerating the protests and seeking to find a political solution, the regime rapidly escalated the situation and responded with uh, brutal force. Uh, since then, the revolution has devolved into an international conflict. As everyone knows, ISIS entered the scene in 2014, uh, Russia entered in 2015, and the, and the war has in many ways become a, a proxy war. And unfortunately, it's displaced millions of people and spilled over into the rest of the region and even into Europe and the United States and the rest of the world. 
And Mark, I want to jump to you because I introduced sort of the scope of the humanitarian crisis, but can you elaborate a little bit more on how it's devolved since 2011 and just provide some more information about like the humanitarian crisis at hand? So at the outset of the, the Syrian civil war, Kofi Annan, the, the former Secretary General, he, he wasn't Secretary General at that time, but then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon asked Kofi Annan to to try to mediate the conflict. And there were some opportunities for, for mediation early on. And Kofi Annan warned, he said, you know, just as, as the country of Iraq imploded, Syria would explode and sow chaos throughout the region. And his words back in 2011 at the outset of the conflict uh, were sadly prophetic. I mean, this is the single worst humanitarian crisis of the modern era. You have something like 13 million people now displaced, um, about five and a half million at this point, I think, are refugees, the most of whom live in uh, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, uh, you know, sowing instability in, in those places. Um, there are most of, of the, the Syrians that have been displaced by the conflict have been displaced internally, and the ability to get them the food and medicine and humanitarian relief they need has not, um, has not been great. Uh, you see, for example, most recently in, in eastern Ghouta, the Syrian regime using uh, kind of a tactic it's honed over the last few years of, of barricading and, and blockading. Uh, populations in order to, to starve them into submission, and that's sadly been their modus operandi for for many times. And then, of course, you have on top of that ISIS, um, who you know are, are you know, awful you know, butchers and, and, and engage in all sorts of horrendous acts of, of barbary. So, I mean, it, it is the worst, and, of, and it has you know exploded. It has metastasized. Um, it's not slowing down, um, and you know, obviously, it's it's uh, created a refugee crisis. Um, that the international humanitarian community has not been able to keep up with. They don't have the funds or the wherewithal to try to take care of every Syrian that's displaced in addition to say every Rohingya or every person in South Sudan uh, or the Democratic Republic of Congo. It is, uh, it, it, it is making everything else in the humanitarian system that much more stretched thin. Mm -hmm. And Dom, I want to bring you back into the discussion because we're here to talk about how the international community could have intervened. And in Syria over the past seven years, where have opportunities arisen to intervene in Syria? Well, so there are two opportunities that really jump out, I think, during the early phases of the conflict. Like Mark mentioned, um, in 2012, the UN and Kofi Annan uh, undertook an initiative to find a ceasefire and to push for a peaceful solution to the conflict. Um, however, I think it was clear from the beginning that the Assad regime wasn't necessarily interested in a peaceful or negotiated settlement and that it viewed the revolution as an existential threat. Um, the regime took several steps to escalate the situation, such as releasing uh, jihadi prisoners in an effort to radicalize the opposition and to undermine its credibility on the international stage. And so I think that that effort to negotiate a ceasefire and to halt the, the escalation of the conflict was undermined by the lack of enforcement and uh, a strong committed response by the international community. And then in August 2013, the Assad regime used chemical weapons against civilian populations in the suburbs of Damascus, killing up to 1,700 innocent people and wounding thousands. 
This is uh, the famous red line that Obama drew in 2012. And unfortunately, the United States and the international community really failed to step up to the plate and to intervene in the situation and to uphold that red line that they'd drawn. So well, let, me, let me push back on you, though, because let's say the U.S. and the U.N. had intervened. Logistically, how would such an operation have taken place? Because I think it's very easy to say intervention was necessary and could have happened, but it's often hard to draw up some sort of military strategy that would not also cause harm to the same civilian population that you're seeking to protect. Yeah, there's no denying that intervention would have been extremely difficult and that there were several valid arguments against it. Uh, I think it's important to address those quickly. Uh, the first is that the regime was strong militarily and it had a very capable air defense network. It also has strong foreign backers with a vested interest in maintaining uh, the regime, such as Russia and Iran. Um, Secondly, the opposition was fractured, and it was unclear whether there was a viable alternative to the Assad regime. Um, and finally, because Russia and China uh, used their veto on the Security Council to effectively hinder any action, uh, intervention in Syria lacked a, a firm legal basis, as Mark pointed out earlier. Um, that being said, in light of the way the conflict has turned out and the way that it's spilled over, I think that limited intervention in the form of targeted punitive strikes against military installations in Syria, or the enforcement of a no-fly zone or safe zones along the borders, or even just stronger diplomatic pressure against backers of the Assad regime could have yielded tangible benefits and could have potentially limited the escalation of the conflict. Mm -hmm. And Mark, I want to bring you back in because you were writing on the issue during 2013 and 2012. What were people saying like, about the logistics of the opera an operation in Syria at the time? Well, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar, but the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum a few uh, weeks ago actually put out a, a pretty brave report looking at Syrian counterfactuals, uh, sort of taking an academically rigorous look at opportunities to intervene and when and how and what that might have looked like and the conclusion was less than satisfying. They basically said there was no silver bullet. Um, all of the options and the key inflection points where intervention might have made a difference had also considerable downsides and it would not be possible to determine whether or not the suggested actions at the time would have mitigated the, the killing in, in any significant way. The one thing the Holocaust Museum did point to, and, and something I, I agree with, is what they called sort of like the original sin of U.S. policy towards uh, the Syrian civil war, which was very early on Barack Obama calling for regime change, uh, calling for Assad to step down. That precluded any effort to engage Assad diplomatically uh, towards a solution that didn't involve you know, fighting to, to, to death. Um, and, and essentially they identified that as probably the biggest policy mistake of that time. Um, and, you know, at the time that was a, a controversial decision, but you also have to kind of put it in the context of the Arab Spring, specifically in uh, Egypt, where, you know, in 2011, things were looking pretty decent for, for the Arab Spring. You know, the, it was the Obama administration's decision to abandon its support for Hosni Mubarak after you know, 25 years of standing firmly by his side in Egypt that led to his downfall. 
and the election, uh, the Democratic election of, of, of Morsi. So things were, were looking okay at, at, at that point in terms of like the Obama administration calling for uh, regime change. In retrospect, though, that seemed to be a, a fatal mistake in Syria. And so if not regime change, then what could the Obama administration have done, you know, maybe not with military intervention, but um, with diplomatic pressure to actually force the Assad regime to sit down with the rebels? Well, they, the Obama administration did not have a lot of leverage over the Assad regime. I mean, it was the Russians and the Iranians now that have all the leverage, most of the leverage, um, over the, 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 the Assad regime. And, you know, it turns out that the Russians and the Iranians have a lot more at stake in what happens in Syria than the United States did. The, the U.S. does not have, uh, you know, huge equities invested in Syria in the same way that Iran and Russia did. And so it was just like a higher priority for Russia than uh, and, and for Iran than it was for the United States. And so no matter what the U.S. proposed, um, the, the Iran and, and the Russia would, would never agree. And that creates created this paralysis at the Security Council where you know, concerted international action was never able to be mounted because of, of the Russian veto, which they exercised liberally when it came to, to Syria. And so seven years later, when we're looking back at the Syrian crisis, has the international community done anything beyond, you know, obviously they haven't intervened militarily, but what kind of like peacekeeping missions and engagements with the Syrian government um, have they actually gone forward with, and were those successful at all, or were those would those help at all to mitigate the humanitarian crisis temporarily? Um, let me answer that in, in two ways. First, the most sort of dramatic concerted international action on Syria did happen in 2013 after the use of chemical weapons after that Obama red line. The um, threat of uh, Obama's uh, military strikes against Syria brought Russia to the negotiating table and they agreed on a Security Council resolution calling for Assad to give up his stockpiles and calling for the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons to verify that these stockpiles had been um, had, had been taken out of the country and for that act actually the the OPCW won the, the Nobel Peace Prize that year so so that was one glimmer of hope uh, and it stemmed from the fact that there was unanimity on the Security Council at least temporarily uh, around that issue on the humanitarian side I mean the UN has been struggling to, to keep up you know they, they have to negotiate humanitarian access with both rebels who control certain towns and the Assad government who controls certain towns. That access is not guaranteed. To make matters worse, there has been um, a sort of pretty concerted campaign of attacking humanitarian workers, of bombing hospitals that um, is not limited to the Syria conflict, but Syria conflict is certainly one of the worst examples of this new trend in which humanitarians are suddenly becoming uh, targets in, in warfare. Mm -hmm. And so, Dom, I want to jump back to you now because what can still be done to actually tackle this humanitarian crisis? We've talked about how the international community has not been able to do much to limit the um, human rights abuses in the country. What can still be done to at least tackle or limit some of the human rights abuses that have been happening? Well, it seems like a foregone conclusion that the Assad regime, backed by Russia and Iran and Hezbollah, will prevail in the end. So at this point, I think that the most that the international community can do is to 
pressure the regime and its backers to restrain themselves against, especially when it comes to humanitarian aid. Um, and it's important that the, we continue the fight against ISIS and other extremist groups in the area. But at the same time, I would advocate for punitive strikes against the regime as occurred in uh, April 2017 when the Trump administration actually responded to a, a chemical attack with a meaningful strike against a Syrian airfield. The whole point isn't to bring down the regime, it isn't to uh, escalate the situation, it's just to enforce certain norms that have been violated multiple times over the course of this conflict. And I think there's still hope for the international community through concerted effort and through a strong uh, show of unity to enforce those norms. And before finishing talking about this case study in Syria, uh, Mark, what are your thoughts? What could still be done to tackle this humanitarian crisis? I mean, on the humanitarian side of things, uh, you know, organ agencies like the World Food Program and the UN Refugee Agency uh, need all the help they can get. They, they're struggling with, with funding right now. I mean, these agencies uh, support their operations exclusively through the voluntary contributions of donors, uh, and the biggest donors are our countries, our member states themselves. So you need to see countries like the United States, which is in this kind of budget-cutting frenzy, it seems, coming down from, from the White House, to not relent on its support for basic humanitarian relief for besieged Syrians. At the political level, um, it's really hard to see um, any way forward. I mean, we're, we're at a, a stalemate here, um, and there seems to be almost a de facto partition of Syria happening. And meanwhile, the, the sort of geopolitics of, of this all is getting sort of more and more messed up by the day. I don't know if you guys are following what's happening in, in Afrin in, in northern uh, Syria on the Turkish border. But here you have Turkey, a NATO-backed U.S., a NATO uh, U.S. ally, attacking Kurdish forces who the U.S. supported, who are instrumental in uh, evicting ISIS from the area, uh, and they're fighting each other to, to death. And uh, there seems to be a profound lack of U.S. leadership on on this issue, where you have two key U.S. allies fighting each other, um, and and it, it really sort of makes no sense. And the conflict keeps developing and, and metastasizing. Frankly, in, in a way that I referenced earlier, that that Kofi Annan predicted, you know, almost seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And based on our discussion of Syria, I want to leave our audience with a few concluding thoughts before we go into audience questions. And I want to start with you, Anna. You provided the framework to discuss humanitarian crises and the responsibility to protect. So do you think that the U.S. and international community should intervene or at least think about intervening in humanitarian crises that are still happening today? Um, you know, in other words, what are the major takeaways of our discussion? And is responsibility to protect still a viable idea? idea in 2018. Yeah, so the responsibility to protect is still a useful framework because it really at this point is the closest thing we have to a doctrine that attempts to put human lives over state interests, over foreign policy objectives. And, you know, when we're talking about humanitarian crises, that is the core of what we're talking about is real people and trying to protect their lives. But, you know, on the other hand, it's still inadequate to the realities of the international system, right? What do you do with a nation like North Korea that you know, harms its citizens but has 
very powerful allies, allies that are on the UN Security Council that has nuclear weapons. What do you do with a case like Libya in which you know, good intentions end up having dire consequences because you, know, you don't have the hindsight to see what, where your strategy is going to go? And without reconciling the you know, moral and legal frameworks, without creating a unified vision with all member countries, we're left with a situation in which you know this red line is still blurred. Mm-hmm. And um, what are your what are your sort of concluding thoughts? Uh, my main takeaway from this discussion is that we need to rethink humanitarian intervention. Um, and it seems like part of the problem, and I think Mark alluded to this in the beginning, is that when the Syrian conflict broke out, it seemed like the international community was really pushing for regime change for the Assad regime to go. Um, but they weren't willing to follow through with that. And so I think that what needs to happen is we need to reconcile um, the desire for a perfect outcome with the reality on the ground, but still be committed to improving the situation in a meaningful way. And so there needs to be, in addition to just humanitarian aid, the willingness, I think, to intervene, uh, to enforce that aid and to protect and to distribute it effectively. I don't think that that has been carried out in Syria. And it's not happening in all the other humanitarian crises crises that are unfolding today. And it's had dire consequences like we've seen in Syria. And so Mark, what are your concluding thoughts to to end the show here? Well, I mean, it's important to bring in the the lesson of Iraq, I think, into all of this. I mean, I I think I'm a little bit older than you guys, but I came of age in the disaster of the, the Iraq crisis in which humanitarian principles were invoked to justify the invasion and occupation and overthrow of Saddam Hussein. And, and that experience demonstrated a profound limit to the ability of, of military force to shape outcomes in ways that are desirable to, to the United States, frankly. Uh, and I think that lesson needs to not be, be forgotten. One can't overestimate the ability of, of U.S. military intervention to shape uh, events on the ground, its track record in recent years is pretty pretty terrible. Um, now, there, there are some interventions around the world that happen under the auspices of UN, the United Nations and UN peacekeeping that have a far better track record. I think it's because they are backed by the UN and have um, that UN peacekeeping element as opposed to an invade and occupy element that um, make them successful. We're we're speaking actually on the day that the uh, UN peacekeeping mission in Liberia is is shutting down after 12 years that, like the Iraq war, uh, deployed in in 2003. But unlike Iraq, that was a very successful mission that um, left in its place a stable democracy and a growing economy. So we need to be, I think, wary about the ability of these kinds of U.S.-led military interventions that don't have broad international support. Mm. And I think that's a a good jumping off point to lead to our audience questions. So if anyone in the audience is interested, you can step up to the microphone and uh, feel free to ask any any question about what we've discussed already. We're looking to take like two or three questions. Uh, Go ahead, Nick. So, uh, Mark Howell on Facebook asked, there seem to be a lot of issues with, uh, with the situation, a lot of problems, and not really that many solutions. So, is there really any kind of approach that governments of the world, the United States, or anybody else is taking? Or are people sort of just sitting around and, you know, acknowledging problems, not really going further from there? Uh, Sorry, uh, Nico, can you, can you repeat that question? It was, like, echoed a little bit. 
So basically, Nick's question was that um, Nick's question was from Mark Powell, and it was basically that he doesn't see the international community doing much to help mitigate the humanitarian crisis in Syria. So what can still be done? I think we touched on that, but maybe if we could reiterate that a little bit. Um, you know, politically, as I said earlier, I don't think there's much that can be done in this point. You know, the regime change isn't happening. I think it's up to Russia and Iran to try to dictate uh, events on the ground. I think you could, and, and frankly, politically in the, the Kurdish-controlled area, it's also, as I said earlier, uh, fraught because of the tensions between uh, the Turkish military and the Kurdish forces. So politically, I, I don't see there to be much much resolution here. I, I think the best we can hope for is is a stalemate. Um, the parties exhaust each, each other in, in fighting. Um, on the humanitarian side of things, again, the best we can do is keep supporting organizations like the World Food Program, the UN Refugee Agency, which are totally overstretched by this crisis. And not only this crisis, but there are other major humanitarian crises happening around the world that are just uh, tapping out their ability to be to be effective everywhere they need to be. I mean, we didn't even talk about Burma or uh, you know the South Sudan or the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, these places are taxing humanitarian agencies uh, to, to the max. Mm -hmm. That'll be a discussion for the next episode, I guess. And uh, we'll take Caitlin. Hi, so um, it seems like one of the biggest reasons that uh, territories kind of collapse after crisis intervention tends to be like a lack of state, um, like basic state resources and like reasons like ISIS can come into these areas and kind of take hold is a lack of basic state infrastructure. And we talked earlier about a moral right to kind of respond when these crises happen. Is there that same kind of moral right existing that doesn't infringe on sovereignty when it comes to follow-up action, like making sure that these air regions stay stable even after the initial crisis intervention has happened? Uh, Mark, do you want to take a take a shot at that one? Yeah, I mean, you. What, well, actually, this is kind of where the Iraq example and the Kosovo example are are interesting. Um, you know, you don't typically have the kind of questions over state sovereignty um, after the intervention, so long as the Security Council authorizes like a peacekeeping mission or some sort of like assistance mission, and these missions are designed to help build up state infrastructure after um, a conflict is over or as, a, as countries are transitioning from conflict to peace to help build up the basic infrastructures of, of the state. And any UN peacekeeping mission uh, has along with it um, you know, parts of, of the mission that are you know, things like, like strengthening the judiciary, making sure elections are, are free and fair. And so you have this kind of peace building um, uh, element to these kinds of post-conflict situations and you know for a while the US government even tried to get in on on this game creating a department in the, the State Department called the it's like the civilian stabilization and resource section CRS it was called and it was kind of all the fad um, in the second term of the Bush administration after uh, Saddam fell how do we do a better job of building up, of doing, you know, nation building, basically. Um, 
but but as I said earlier, these you don't run into the same kind of sovereignty issues because you have the cooperation of the host government when you embark on on these missions, and these missions can't work without the full-sown cooperation of of the host government. Thank you for your question. Um, can I, Seth, you can come up. I'd like to thank all the panelists for their time. Um, regarding the brief discussion we had about political paralysis in Syria because of Russian and Iranian interests, I'm personally very skeptical that we can at this current time overcome that political paralysis because analogously I also see political paralysis happening in Yemen right now where the naval blockade by Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabian air invasion has triggered a humanitarian crisis that the international community agrees on and yet the United States hasn't put any pressure on Saudi Arabia to lift this blockade. As a matter of fact, we've actually helped fund their air invasion. So my question is, I understand that the humanitarian intervention is a moral imperative, but how do we overcome political paralysis when U.S. interests are also involved? Mark, I'll give that to you. Sure, I yeah, sure. I mean, so, so I think this, when you're talking about, about the United States, I think this is a, a domestic political issue a, as well. There is uh, an effort, a bipartisan effort, between Senator Christopher Murphy of Connecticut and Mike Lee of Utah, kind of a, a lefty and, and, and a righty, uh, who um, are, are trying to condition arms sales to Saudi Arabia on their humanitarian use, on their use in, in, in Yemen, and are trying to do basically sort of blocking U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia in order to ensure that Saudi Arabia doesn't sort of bomb humanitarian targets like, you know, MSF hospitals or civilian targets like markets as often as they're doing, and also try to exert pressure on them to, um, to lift the, the, the blockade. And so, you know, this is, I think, in part uh, an issue of, of domestic politics. What points of leverage do politicians have in order to convince the Trump administration that they ought not to give a blank check to the Saudis in their conduct in, in, in Yemen? Um, and frankly, this was this is not limited to the, the Trump administration. This was a problem in the Obama administration as well. You know, it was late in the Obama administration that the U.S. decided to send some cranes that to offload um, humanitarian items in the uh, main Yemeni port of Hodeidah, where something like 80% of all food that's consumed in Yemen comes through this one port. The Saudis bombed the cranes in this port, so the U.S. offered to send new cranes, and those cranes were stuck in, in Dubai for um, months and months and months and months because the Saudis just who had a blockade on the area wouldn't let them through and, and neither the Obama administration nor the Trump administration applied significant pressure, sufficient pressure to allow those those cranes to, to enter. Eventually now they, they are there, but the blockade, the basic elements of the blockade are still in place and so those cranes aren't aren't doing much. They're offloading some humanitarian goods, but not all imported food. Uh, and we'll take the last question from Sean. <clears throat> Um, can you hear me? Cool. Yeah. So once again, thanks so much for you guys for coming out. This has been really, really awesome. Um, my question is, first off, it's, it's really upsetting to me personally to see the Syrian conflict in the way that it's progressed over the last seven years. And my question is with respect to justice. Like, if we just sort of accept that Bushar al-Assad's going to stay in power, 
and that, that's just the way that the Syrian um, civil war is going to end out. Um, what about justice and reconciliation? I and mean, for the people that are on the ground, you know, how do we bring these people who have been perpetrating these horrible humanitarian um, abuses, how do we bring them to justice? And that, that's, that seems to me like a very difficult question to ask. Thank you. I think that's one of the harder things to reconcile about the Syrian conflict and just any you know, genocide atrocity committed in general. Um, but it seems like in recent times the desire to apply justice to these criminals, to these, these leaders who, who commit atrocities against their own um, citizens can actually exacerbate and extend the suffering of the people because it reduces the incentive of these leaders to seek a political solution or to step aside. Um, and you just have to look at Libya where uh, Gaddafi was um, killed by rebels. Um, you know, and this is after he'd surrendered his nuclear weapons program and, and all of that. To see that, I think in a lot of cases, authoritarian leaders are taking the wrong lessons from, from this. And if anything, the desire for justice may actually increase their resistance and, and their desire to hold on to power. So it's, it's a really tough thing to reconcile. I don't think the international community has an answer yet either. Uh, yeah, I, I just add that as a practical matter, the most um, sort of obvious avenue for justice in Syria would be the International Criminal Court. Uh, but because uh, Syria is not a, a party to the security to the the ICC, um, granting the ICC jurisdiction over crimes that occur in Syria requires a vote of Security Council, and Russia has vetoed vetoed uh, that that resolution. So in its stead, um, there are some civil society groups that are gathering evidence right now, and they're led by the former uh, U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes, Stephen Rapp, who is leading this charge to collect evidence uh, that could be used potentially for some sort of future justice mechanism. Um, there's also um, sort of more evidence being collected by the UN Human Rights Council's Commission of Inquiry on Syria, which every six months produces a report that includes new evidence of, of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and, and mass atrocities being uh, committed. So the evidence is being collected, uh, but as of now, it's unclear uh, how or what or under what circumstances uh, this evidence might ever be used in, in a court of law. Well, Sean, I hope that answers your question. Sorry, Victor, that we couldn't get to your question, but uh, we're going to have to end the podcast here. Uh, thank you very much for coming out. We really appreciate your support, both live and uh, virtually. Um, I want to give a big shout out to our outreach and production team. They're back there behind closed doors. We have Ali Hall, Jeff Keating, and Andy Carluccio. They've done a ton of work for us, and uh, we really want to give them a big shout out. I also want to thank um, Mark for coming on. Uh, I think this was a fantastic discussion and I really appreciate you coming on. I love your podcast and I encourage the rest of you all to listen to Global Dispatches. It's great, some fantastic interviews and I promise you'll uh, be more knowledgeable after listening to one of his podcasts. Thank you, you guys are great. And uh, lastly I want to thank Anand Dom. We've been working quite a bit these past couple days to get the research out and uh, make this production. And um, this is like where I end as the host of the Global Inquirer. So I really want to appreciate all your time and all your support. Um, I know it's going to be in good hands uh, when it goes off to Nick Mortensen. And uh, I'm really excited to see where it goes. So on that note, uh, Andy, can you take us out? And do.